Hey, it's Jordan Johnson, and you are listening to The Grove Podcast. Well, it's truly the most wonderful time of the year as Christmas is in the air all around us, and we just had the incredible privilege of hosting our Christmas Grove gathering. Many of you who gathered online with us know that it was a truly holy and breathtaking night. We got to hear from one of our dear friends and the insanely inspired Bible teacher, Jackie Hill Perry. In today's episode, we get to hear the profoundly moving talk she brought that evening. She unpacks God's holiness and the marvel of Him coming to earth in Jesus with some of the most compelling pictures and explanations that we believe will stay with you for a very long time. We pray it moves you to worship Him this season. So here is Jackie Hill Perry, live at The Grove. Please don't judge me when I say this, but I have always, and I mean always, abhorred Christmas music. So this time of year, though exciting and fun and all that, is always a smidge cringe because I know when December starts, so does the singing. But I had an epiphany last week. I was watching a Christmas special on TV, and they were singing Christmas songs, but the tone, it, it wasn't all jolly and stuff. It was worshipful, which made me sit and finally listen to the words, and then I realized that I actually do kind of like Christmas music, that it, that it wasn't just the genre that I detested, but the melodies are the tone in which they were sung. Uh, as I started to listen to the words, I was like, this stuff is mad dense, theologically high key. So for the last week or so, I, Jackie Hill Perry, have been listening and enjoying Christmas music. God is real, put a praise right there. In that vein, I thought it right to name this sermon or talk uh, after one. I don't usually do that, but to commemorate my new love for Christmas stuff, I wanted to title this sermon, Holy Night, after the carol, Silent night. The first verse of the song says this, silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Whoever wrote that, I don't think they had a newborn. I've had three, the youngest one is seven weeks, and they don't sleep in heavenly peace ever, but that's another topic for another day. Tonight, I plan to speak with you about the holiness of God and how special the birth of Christ is in light of it. The term holiness can be triggering for some, confusing for others, or comforting to many, but it's nothing we should be afraid of per se. To venture into this subject of holiness is to dive deep into the person of God, which is always a worthwhile thing to do. How I'm going to do that is by walking through one Old Testament example of a holy day that I hope will help us see and respond to the significance of that holy night, that holy night when a child was born. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. We all might know a little something about Mr. Moses, how he was a Hebrew man raised by Pharaoh's daughter that eventually helped Israel out of Egyptian slavery, how he helped to split the Red Sea uh, on account of the power of God, how God's law was given through him, etc. But before all of that, he was a man that met with the holy God on a random day in the wilderness. The text says that Moses was keeping or taking care of his father-in-law's flock when he saw something strange. He looked and he saw a bush burning. Now, that ain't altogether special. The kinds of bushes that were scattered around Horeb were easily inflamed. They were quick to catch fire. What made this bush a sight to behold, however, was that the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. So, Imagine if you can, a bush with a flame in the midst of it, with its leaves and branches still intact, not burning at all. We've all seen something burn, paper, candles, wood, hair, if you're messy like that. Once fire gets a hold of anything flammable, it consumes it. And the reason this happens is because the fire is using the thing that it burns as its fuel. It needs its energy. Fire is dependent on something outside of itself for it to continue to exist. Once the fire has nothing left to burn, it's gone because it has no life in and of itself, but only in condition with another. This entire scene is so strange for a reason to see a full-blown fire inside of a bush while the bush remains unaffected by the heat. This bush that Moses had come across seems to have a fire within it that doesn't seem to need it for it to keep burning. Why? Because this bush contains a holy God. The concept of holiness communicates two things. One, absolute uniqueness. Two, absolute moral purity. Usually, when we think about holiness, we think about the latter, that God is completely sin sinless and therefore antagonistic towards sin, which is true. But that is not the only way to understand holiness. God as holy also means that God is literally set apart from everything. He is totally unique, as in God exists differently from everything that exists. I'm gonna take an example from Jen Wilkin to, to explain what I mean by that. She said that if you took a sheet of paper and wrote a line down the middle and then labeled the left side created and then labeled the right side uncreated, on the left side under the term created, what would your list be comprised of? 
everything. You, your mother, your mind, your personality, the world, the sun, time, heaven, angels, ideas, coffee, lungs, the stars, everything you know of has been created. But on the right side of the paper, underneath the word uncreated, there is literally only one word you could write, God. And so if you took a step back and looked at that sheet of paper with everything ever made on the left and just God on the right, you can see then how God is absolutely different and unique than anything or anyone you will have or have ever met. And this God is meeting Moses in the wilderness in a flame of fire. The reason the bush was burning and not consumed is because this. Since God is not created, that means that God does not need anything to exist. The flame did not need the bushes or the branches or the leaves or the stems to keep burning. It only needed itself. God is the only independent being in the universe. He doesn't need anything or anyone for him to be himself. Unlike you and me who needs him to live and move and have our being, the reason we can do or be anything is because there is a God in whom we derive our existence. And this God decided to reveal himself to little old Moses. Let's read what happened next. Verse five, it says, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet from the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In God's words to Moses, I want you to see something. First, God says, Moses, Moses. Then he says, do not come near. Moses, Moses, do not come near. God's use of repetition here can be called repetition of endearment. It's one of God's ways of communicating to someone uh, that he loves them or has an affection for them. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. So knowing that, that God is calling Moses' name twice out of affection, do you then find it strange that God tells him not to come near? I mean, friends like to be near each other, right? That's one of the beautiful things about friendship is intimacy. Being able to share space and food and ideas and picture and Instagram likes, whatever, with another person. If my friend told me that they love me and that they got an affection for me and then the next minute they told me not to come near, I'd be a little confused. But this is the thing. God is not like our friends. He is not like us in essence at all. He is altogether holy and he is to be approached as such. He tells Moses that the place that he is standing on is holy ground. This ground is different, unique, set apart, not because of any virtue that it has in and of itself. It's just dirt, but because the presence of God has sanctified it. What do you think 
might have happened if Moses heard his name being spoken with affection and somehow thought that meant that he could approach God on his own terms. I mean, we can all relate to being so comfortable with the love of God that we forget or don't believe that God is also holy. Do you think that God's affection for him would have dismissed Moses's irreverence, that his holiness would not respond to Moses's sinfulness? I think a good story to put here is that of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. The Ark of the Covenant of the covenant, which was symbolic of God's presence among his people and thus to be treated as such, had been captured by the Philistines. And eventually, this is the Wikipedia version, and eventually brought into the home of Abinadab. After being in Abinadab's home for a few decades, King David decided that it was time to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So he commissioned Abinadab's son to carry the ark back into the city. One of them was a man by the name of Uzzah. The passage states that the men put the ark on a cart, which was the incorrect way to carry it, actually. The law prescribed that the ark should be carried on two poles placed on the shoulders of the Levites, who could then carry the ark wherever they needed it to go. But instead of looking into God's law for how to handle God's stuff, Uzzah and them put it on a cart led by some oxen. As the people of God danced and sang and played instruments and uh, uh, used the little trampolines and all that type of stuff, what's it called? The little thing that you shake? I don't know. To welcome the ark back into the city, one of the oxen's foot slipped, causing the ark to tilt, fearing that this symbolic thing that represents the holy, holy presence of God would hit the ground. Uzzah reacted impulsively, though not faithfully, reaches out his hand to steady it, and do you know what happened? When Uzzah's hand touched the ark, the Lord struck him dead. And we don't like these kinds of passages. We stay far, far away from the stories of old where God judges in ways that we don't understand or like. We empathize with Uzzah. We call his sin by good names. We say he was just trying to help. Why would God do that to him? The answer is, because God is holy. R.Z. Sproul said this, that the presumptuous sin of Uzzah is that he thought that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. God told Moses not to come near because God was holy and he was not. He was born after Adam and thus he was sinful. If he were to come near to God on his own terms, God would be just in judging him. The absolute moral purity of God sets him at odds with sinful flesh. Habakkuk 1.3 says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. This is why throughout the scriptures you see a kind of divine distance between God and man. After Adam's sin, they were banished from the garden where they had once had unlimited access to God distance. At Mount Sinai, when God gave his law to Israel, they were commanded not to touch the mountain lest they die. Distance. When Isaiah saw the Lord of hosts on the throne, he could see everything but his face. Distance. This distance is a natural consequence of sin being in proximity to righteousness. The two are incompatible like oil and water. Thus, when the two do meet the profane and the holy, the secular and the sacred, it can be a deadly thing. We, we marvel We're shocked, surprised when God judges the likes of Uzzah or Uzzah for his sin as if 
the holy God has some injustice, as if he is wrong for being so righteous, as if he is irrational with his wrath. But what we should be more astounded by is that God has not judged us. I have sinned more than other on a good day, but here I am. Romans says, note the kindness and severity of God. In this interaction between God and Moses, we see that though God loves Moses, that does not mean that God is like Moses. If Moses were at any point to presume that he, a sinner, can come near the Holy One apart from the grace of God, he would drop dead immediately, for the wages of sin is death, which brings me back around to this day that we call Christmas. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 4. It says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the room, a place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped and swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. I don't know if there is anything more astounding than the birth of Jesus. Because when Jesus was born into the world, it was the Holy God coming near us. Not only that, when Jesus was born into the world, it was the Holy God becoming like us. Remember, we all have a beginning because all created things do. A birth date is only what creatures have. 
But God exists outside of time. He has no beginning of end or end. He is what he is, and that's a part of what makes him holy. The fact that he exists differently from us. That's why God doesn't sleep nor slumber. He doesn't need to recharge or regain his energy. He always has it. God also isn't curious. He doesn't need Google. He knows everything. So when he asks questions, it's never to know but to reveal. God doesn't change either in personality or person. What he is today, he will always be unlike us. We are always changing. We are always becoming. Who I was 10 years ago is not who I am today. Heck, depending on how much sleep I got, who I was at 10 a.m. may not be who I'm going to be at 12 o'clock. As we observed in the burning bush, God doesn't need anything. He is completely and utterly independent. He is not needy or unsatisfied, but here in the beginning of Luke chapter 2, God needs to be swaddled. God needs a bed. In this incarnation, God has wrapped himself in human flesh. Therefore, God became just as needy as we are, just as dependent as we are. We fight so hard to not be vulnerable in this way. When we project to the world or our friends or our boyfriends that we don't, or our husbands that we don't need anything, we are trying our best not to be human. We are trying our best not to be what we really are. We are trying our best to act like God, to act like we are sufficient in and of ourselves, but that's a lie and we know it. That's why we're exhausted. But in the birth of Christ, God chose, made a decision to be like us submitting himself under the weaknesses that all humans experience, which makes sense because a holy God has to be a humble God. Philippians 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And why does this even matter? In the grand scheme of things, that the holy, transcendent, omnipotent, high and lifted up God would become human. It matters because God chose to be like you so he could help you. Hebrews 10, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest. For because he himself was tempted or suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Remember when I mentioned how we have this thing where we... We don't want to be perceived as needy, most likely because we don't want to be seen as weak. And I wonder if we do the same thing with God. If in our quest to be holy like he is, to not give in to the flesh, to not call old boy back, to not watch porn, to not be unkind or vengeful, to not gossip, to not give in to our sexual temptations. I wonder if a part of the reason Holiness is harder for us at times. It's because we have not understood or believed the fact that Jesus has empathy. And that because he understands, he is able to help. I really do get the disconnect because perhaps we imagine God on his throne looking down on all the humans, uh, being weak, fledgling about the world, trying to obey unsuccessfully, and he is there. He is there at the right hand of God, but he is not condemning us or criticizing us. He is actually interceding for us. But what would happen if we remember Jesus in the wilderness with the devil being tempted, or Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane struggling with obedience? Like, what if 
in light of Jesus' humanness. We made the decision to believe that Jesus is a God-man that not only understands, but one that also overcame so that we could be as victorious as he always was. When it comes to God, we really don't have to act like we're strong. Being prideful will never help you be holy. He already knows you're weak because he knows you're not him. Being a human automatically makes you needy and God being God automatically makes him sufficient. The holy God became like us so he could help us. Another reason God being like us is significant is because for us to be saved, God had to become human. When Moses met with God at the burning bush, he was warned not to come near it because it was made holy by the presence of God. His sinfulness kept him from total access, and rightfully so. When that which is holy comes in contact with that which is sinful, it consumes it. God is not called a consuming fire for no reason. We are not told that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God just because God's ethical purity means that he is without sin completely. He is without spot. He is without wrinkle. He is without blemish. He must and will always do what is right and true and good. Sin in all of its colors looks nothing like God. It is completely antithetical to God in every way. When God sees sin, he does not see himself. So then, in his complete righteousness, he is obligated to judge all who do it. And I know somebody is saying, but isn't God's love, Jackie? I mean, it's Christmas. Shouldn't we just talk about the love of God? We should talk about the whole God. And to that point, I would also respond that don't you know that where there is love, there must be hatred. If I say I love life, I must hate death. If I say I love truth, I must hate lies. If I say I love good food, I am obligated to hate McDonald's. It's just a part of the thing. Whatever it is that you love, you will hate whatever it is that attempts to undermine, distort, or destroy that love. If God himself is perfect love, then God must have perfect hatred toward the thing that comes against it. And if one thing is clear, it's that God hates sin. But the good news is, Although our sinfulness created distance between us and God, God's love closed the gap. What do I mean by that? Let me recap one more time. Moses couldn't come near the bush. Isaiah could see God's robe filling the temple, but he could not see his face. Israel couldn't come near the mountain. Uzzah simply placed his hand on the ark and God's wrath came out in judgment, killing him. The priests could only go into God's presence once a year. And even then, there was a constant threat of death from Genesis to Malachi. It's the story of people not being able to freely come near to God because of his holiness and their sin. But the glory of the incarnation is that God himself has come near to us. For Jesus to be swaddled, God had to be touched. 
for the shepherds to praise God for the Savior that was born, God had to be seen. The holy, holy, holy God that Isaiah saw on the throne condescended, taking on human flesh, living with, eating with, speaking with, and touching sinners. This is why he is called Emmanuel, God with us. Please don't miss the mercy in this, that God the Son has come near so that we might have direct access to God the Father without the threat of death. In Jesus, we can come to God's throne of grace with boldness. Do you think Old Testament saints had that privilege? But something had to happen first. It wasn't enough for Jesus to be born. It wasn't enough for Jesus to live, but Jesus also had to die. As a self-existent God, he can't die. But when God became the God-man, he was able to die as all humans do. But what made his death different from Adam or Moses or Abraham or me or you is that his death was a substitution. Remember, I said the wages of sin is death. All are born in it. It's something we all deserve, whether it's because of the lie we told last night or the ego we had a decade ago. There is wrath stored up and ready to be poured out on us for our sin. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to die so that we wouldn't have to. He reckoned his son guilty so that we would be declared innocent. He made him to be who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. None of that, none of it would be possible if God did not choose to become a baby. There is no way in heaven or on earth that I would be able to reach the Holy One on my own accord. My hands were too dirty. My heart was too dark, my conscience was too loud, but God came to me, God came to you. He came, became like us so he could help us. He became like us so he could save us and his holiness was never diminished because of it anyway. If anything, it became even clearer to all who had the eyes to see. It It is his holiness that makes him lovely. It is his holiness that makes him faithful. It is his holiness that makes him good and great and better than anything that exists. It is his holiness that makes him worthy of my faith in his son. To know his son, we must repent. It is not an option. We must turn from every unholy thing, reckoning it as unworthy of our obedience, but then we must believe. We must believe in the holy, holy, holy God. He loves you, and his love is pure and undefiled because he is also holy, and he has made a way of escape for us. He has created a pathway for us to step onto holy ground with our shoes off and our hearts open. The birth of Jesus is so much more than a really fun holiday where we wrap presents and eat ham or tofu, whichever is your thing. On that holy, holy night, Jesus was the gift that the holy God has given us so that all who are far off may come near. To close, I want to read another Christmas song that I now like that has brought me much joy. It's titled, Hark, 
the herald angels sing. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. God, you are holier than we could ever imagine. You are bigger. You are realer. You are more than what more is. There are no words to describe who you are. But I'm thankful that you have given, your, given us your scriptures so that we would have some sense of who the transcendent God is. You are not so distant that you have not revealed yourself to humans. I'm thankful that you love us so much so that you sent your son to become like us and die for us so that we could know you. I'm thankful that you have given us people on earth, Christians, to be able to honor and mirror you and image you so that we may see what you are like also. I'm thankful that the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So all that you have commanded us to do, you have also empowered us to do. I'm thankful that you just, you are what you are. You will be what you are. And we are what we are. We're yours because of what Christ Jesus has done. I pray for everyone watching. I pray for those who are confused by your judgment, that they will see that it is an outworking of your righteousness, that you are not like society, that you will judge the guilty, that you will not leave them unpunished, but you are also merciful. So you sent your son to be a propitiation for us so that you could be just and justifier of all those who place their faith in Jesus. I pray, God, that we would grow in our love for you. I pray that we would grow in our love for your holiness. I pray that we would grow in our love for your truth and your scriptures. I pray all these things in that holy, holy, holy son's name. Amen. It is truly a marvel that God would come down to earth and become needy like us to help us. We pray that falls fresh on your heart today and that you will continue to press into Jesus, who is our only hope today and every day. And be sure to check out JackieHillPerry.com for more of Jackie's talks, her Bible studies and books. And as always, stay tuned with us at TheGroveOnline.com as well as Instagram at PCC underscore The Grove. And remember you are loved today and we will catch you next time on The Grove Podcast.